This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching from the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're starting chapter 26. We've finished the didactic or teaching portions of the book of Matthew. Now we'll watch Jesus go to the cross, and on the way we'll learn so much more about our great God and Savior. In this passage, for example, we'll grapple with the interaction of two principles, free will and the sovereignty of God. Standing alone, each idea is pretty easy to explain and accept, but can the two exist together? This question has been hotly debated for centuries, but there's another, even more important question that we'll find in today's scripture. Where is the best place in life? Let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Find your places in Matthew 26, verses 1 through 13, and follow along with me. When Jesus had finished all these words, and by the way, that's referring to the Olivet Discourse, he said to the disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. We're going to look at three aspects of how we identify the best place of life based on this particular passage here. The first one I want to point out to you is God's sovereignty, which is the prediction of his crucifixion, verses 1 through 2. Now remember, Jesus answered the questions from the disciples in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and he answered with, and I'm paraphrasing this, of that day and hour no one knows, referring to the second coming of Christ. But now Jesus predicted the completion of his redemptive work with very precise indicators here. In two days, he said, in two days the Passover is happening and the Son of Man will be handed over for crucifixion. Unlike the exact hour of his second coming, Jesus knew the exact moment of his crucifixion here, even before his conspirators planned it. And that tells us right there that the cross was never God's reaction to man's sin. The cross is not plan B. God didn't look through eons of time and said, oops, I guess I have, I'm going to have to come up with a solution here now that man is going to fall into sin. No, from the beginning, from before the foundation of the world, the Lamb has been crucified, the Bible says. The cross has been God's program of redemption from eternity past. Now, he had warned his disciples at least three times, according to the Gospel of Matthew, that he would be executed. But now he included the gruesome details. See, if you look in Matthew 16, Matthew 27, and Matthew 20, he predicted that he would be handed over, he would be killed, he would suffer, and all of that. 
And so far, he hasn't provided any of the details. But now he says, this is going to happen Roman style. I'm going to be crucified. Now, the Romans didn't invent crucifixion. They simply added humiliation to this cruel and inhumane way of capital punishment. And that was the method that God chose to pour out his wrath on his son on behalf of sinners, on behalf of you and me, a very cruel way. Now, God had already hinted at the particular cruelty of the death of the Messiah. For example, in Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, we read that he who is hanged is accursed of God. So here's a hint of the type of death that the Messiah would, would have to suffer. Now, he added more details, for example, in the book of Zechariah, chapter 12, verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. So here's another detail of how God himself in the person of the Son of God would be pierced, crucified, for the sins of people. And this was before Matthew 26. This was even before Passion Week 2,000 years ago. But why a cruel death? Why not just cause Jesus to suffer cardiac arrest? Wouldn't that be a little more humane? Why does he have to bleed? The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And when the blood of Christ was poured out for you and for me, it was a clear vision that his life was being given as a ransom for you and for me. So that is why crucifixion had to happen. That is why his blood had to be shed. It was a visual. There's no doubt that he died and then he was killed for you and for me. Then Jesus is telling his disciples, in two days, the Passover is coming. The Son of Man is handed over for crucifixion. And again, you could imagine the disappointment and frustration and, and fear, perhaps, in the heart of the disciples, because even though they knew Jesus had already promised that he would die on behalf of people, they weren't informed about the details until two days before it happened. Therefore, church, the crucifixion of Jesus was God's predetermined plan to redeem his sheep by dying for them, by being crucified before the foundation of the world even, according to Matthew 25, verse 34, he says, because the kingdom had been prepared for the sheep before the foundation of the world, before the sheep ever did anything, before the sheep were even born. Now, I want you to know that Jesus is not a victim of crucifixion. It's his deliberate plan. This is not the cleverness of people. No one forced Jesus to leave behind the comfort of perfect fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit to suffer a horrible death, followed by resurrection. He explains that. He says in, in John 10, verses 17 through 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. In other words, Jesus is saying, I have volunteered under the direction of the Father in an inter-Trinitarian communication, perfect fellowship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, from eternity past, decided that Jesus Christ would come and die in order to rescue sinners. And that death would be by crucifixion, Roman style, not Chinese style. By the way, they were the, the ones who invented crucifixion way back when. And in John 12, verse 27, Jesus says, My soul has become troubled. That's the humanity of Christ right there on display. My soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. So again, the fact that Jesus will be crucified has nothing to do 
with the cleverness of the people who decided to execute Jesus Christ, the Sanhedrin, in combination with the Romans. No. This was God's predetermined plan from eternity past. And we see, therefore, the sovereignty of God on full display here. So the timing of his crucifixion here was not a coincidence either. The Passover feast is associated with him. He, he wants his disciples, he wants everybody to know that the Passover feast associated him with the Paschal Lamb from the book of Exodus. You remember that story, Exodus 12, verse 7. Now, the parallels are, are too many for us to miss this. And, and, and even here, Jesus is saying, I am that Passover Lamb whose blood saves people from the wrath of God. So Jesus didn't want his disciples to miss the typology here. He is that lamb whose shed blood satisfies the wrath of Almighty God. And whoever trusts in him will not be disappointed. Whoever trusts in him will be saved. But it's got to be his blood. You see, no one else's blood qualifies because everyone else in history is a sinner. Jesus is the only one who's the spotless Lamb of God, the sinless Lamb of God. So you cannot die on a cross for other people because you are a sinner, just like the rest of us. You can't die for yourself even. No, somebody has to die for you, and that somebody has to be God himself and God in flesh and blood because God doesn't die. Only human beings die. You see, Jesus Christ had to become a human so that he would die for the sins of people. But people don't raise from the dead, so that human being has to be divine at the same time. You see, Jesus is both God and man at the same time. Not a hybrid, not 50-50, 100% God, 100% man at the same time. Always in perfect harmony. Never for a fraction of a second did he cease to be God. Never for a second did he cease to be human. In fact, he is human to this day. His human, resurrected, glorified body is in heaven now, flesh and blood. Some of his disciples were able to touch him and verify that he was not a ghost after he rose from the dead. So what he's saying here to the disciples as we kick off the road to Calvary here, the road to the cross, we see God's sovereign sovereignty on full display. He says, in two days this is going to happen. In other words, I am the one in charge of the schedule here. Not the Romans, not the Jews at the time. I am in charge, and I timed my sacrifice here perfectly to let you know and to show you I am that spotless lamb. But I want you to see something else here. Not only God's sovereignty, but man's culpability. Now, I need your full attention now, okay? Because on the one hand, we have God's sovereignty, and that is the prediction of his crucifixion. Now what we have is man's culpability, same word for guilty, and the planning of his crucifixion. You see, you have people here thinking that they are in charge. You have folks here thinking that, ha, ha, we're going to kill this Jesus who, who says he's God. Pay attention here. The handing over of the Son of Man for capital punishment happened by divine predetermination. We already verify that. But that had to be accomplished through the plotting of evil people. You see, God determined from eternity past, before Genesis 1-1, before he even said, let there be light, the plan of redemption had already been laid out. But that had to be accomplished in time. And in order for that to be accomplished in time, people had to plan for it. Now, let me elaborate with a few questions here. That's why I need your full attention. Because we're talking about here free will versus divine sovereignty. According to Ephesians 1 verse 4, did God choose his elect before the foundation of the world and predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ? 
The answer is yes. That's what the Bible says, that God chose us before the foundation of the world, before you were even conceived. God has chosen you, if you're a follower of Christ, and predestined you to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, consider the other question. Did he kidnap you to the kingdom? Did you come to faith in Christ kicking and screaming? Did he shove you through the narrow gate? No. Did you make a conscience decision to follow Jesus, yes or no? Yes. Here's another question. Is there a limited number of people he appointed to eternal life? According to Acts 13, verse 48, yes. There's a limited number of people he appointed to eternal life. He says, as many as have been appointed to eternal life. Is the offer of the gospel universal? Yes. According to Matthew 28, verse 19, the offer of the gospel is for everyone. Does God declare the end from the beginning? According to Isaiah 46, verse 10, yes. He says it, I am the Lord and I declare the end from the beginning. Now, is God going to hold people accountable for every one of their decisions? Yes. According to Revelation 22, verse 12, so he knows the end from the beginning. And at the same time, every one of us will have to answer to God for our decisions. Those of us who follow Jesus Christ, the only judgment we will encounter is the judgment of our works, the evaluation of our works at the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. That's not a salvation or condemnation judgment because we're already in heaven when that happens. The people who refuse to come to faith in Jesus Christ will have to answer to God and will have to be held accountable for having rejected the Son of God, for having made a conscious decision to reject the Son of God. And yet, according to Acts 13, verse 48, as many as have been appointed to eternal life. Now, let me ask you another question that uh, relates more to our times. Who sent Joe Biden to the White House in 2020? Before you answer that question, listen very carefully. Romans 13, verse 1 Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So again, who established Joe Biden in the White House? God. Now, what was the mechanism that God chose to establish Mr. Biden and every other president in the United States for the position of commander-in-chief? What was the mechanism, church? Elections. Who placed Pontius Pilate? in the position of governor of Judea. Jesus told Pontius Pilate in John 19, verse 11, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. So who gave Pontius Pilate the authority to be in that position at that time for divine purposes? God did. What was the mechanism that God used to place that man in power at that time? Not elections. Imperial appointment. Okay, he was appointed by Tiberius to be in that position. Another question to drive the point home here, where did the Bible come from? You say, well, uh, from the pen of people. Okay, well, Paul says this to Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God. God breathed. All scripture is breathed out by God. 2 Timothy 3.16. Now, what was the mechanism that God used to get his word on paper or in papyrus in that case? Peter answers that question. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men Moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Second Peter 1 verse 21. So God breathed out His Word, but He did not bypass 
the personalities of the writers of Scripture or their styles or their vocabulary. We know that because when you read something that Paul wrote, you can tell the difference from what Peter wrote. You can tell the difference between their styles. Now, the reason I'm saying this is to show you how divine sovereignty and human free will operate together. Human free will does not happen apart from the sovereignty of God. Humans are not in charge, even though we may think we are. We are not. Everything that happens in our lives is a part of a divine plan, even though we do make decisions every day. Someone asked Charles Spurgeon one time how to reconcile divine sovereignty and human free will. He gave them a brilliant answer. He says, friends don't need to be reconciled because they're presumably always in harmony. So those two principles and doctrines are not opposed to one another. They walk, they function parallel to one another. Now, the fact that I don't know where they meet doesn't change anything. It just proves that I have a finite mind and I have a hard time understanding the infinite mind of God. Now, my comfort is that one day I will have a glorified mind and I will understand, uh, not fully because otherwise God is finite. If we, if we think that we will one day understand God fully, that's never going to happen because we will always experience the joy of learning when we get to eternity. Remember this, eternal learning without ever getting, well, I know 100% of God now. There is no such thing. There is no 100% of God. God is unlimited. He is eternal, infinite. Therefore, we will spend eternity learning more about Him every day, if there is such a thing called day in eternity. Now, based on this here, let me ask you this. Again, who killed Jesus, according to what we just learned here? Think about it carefully. Who killed Jesus? Was it the Romans, the Jews? Who killed Jesus? Listen to Isaiah 53, verses 4 and then 10, and that will answer that question. Surely... Our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Verse 10, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. And um, how about Romans 8, verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. So who delivered him over for us all, church? God the Father. Now, what was the mechanism that he used for that? The hands of evil people. In the crucifixion of Christ, we see here the harmony between divine sovereignty and man's free will. In this case, guilt, culpability, imperfect harmony. Peter articulated this very well in his very first sermon in Acts 2, verse 23. Listen carefully. He says this, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, check this out, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, coma, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. See, God predetermined that Jesus Christ would be crucified, but the mechanism that he used was the hands of godless men who put him to death. Is that clear? So, now that we determined from Scripture here that human free will cannot operate apart from divine sovereignty, let's make that personal. Let me ask you, who's in charge of your life? If you're like me, you have been shown over and over again that you have a limited amount of energy, a limited amount of knowledge, and a limited amount of resources to be in charge of your own life. You can't even control your next breath. You can't even control when your next heartbeat will happen. 
He is in charge of your life. You have free will. You do make decisions every day. But every one of your days have been determined and ordained by God. So we looked at God's sovereignty and man's culpability. And again, the very next point in this scene, the first scene here of the passion narrative that I want you to see has is related to all of that. Because we're serving a God that is in complete control, we see an example of someone who understands that and acted in a way to honor God because she understood that. And what I want to tell you then that the third point of this lesson here is Christ's affinity. We looked at God's sovereignty, man's culpability, and now Christ's affinity. And that's the preparation for his crucifixion. Matthew now breaks the chronology of the events. I want you to know that. This is something he does often. The Gospel of Matthew doesn't follow a straight line from past, present, and future. Sometimes it goes back in the historical line in order to show us a point. And in this case, he wants us to see that scene from Mary here. He breaks chronology and describes the anointing of Christ in Bethany, which happened six days before the crucifixion here. But the focus is not on the chronology. The focus is on the heart of this lady. Because Jesus evaluates her faith and pronounces a blessing on her because of how she manifests that faith. Clearly, then, she understood something that the disciples missed. Jesus is saying, because Mary understands who I am, because Mary understands the purpose and the significance of my atoning death, she has decided to spend time with me, anointing me and honoring me, sparing no resources to honor me. That will never be taken from her. By the way, every time you read about this particular Mary, there are many Marys in Scripture, but any time she appears in the Bible, she's at the feet of Christ. And what a great example. She's probably one of the most non-famous heroes of the faith. I want to be that kind of person who doesn't matter what's going on around me. I mean, just take me to the feet of Christ. Let me crawl to Him if I can't walk. I just want to spend time with my Savior and spare no resources in order to honor Him because that's what we learn. Mary is someone who holds nothing back, despite the criticism of people. Disciples of Christ criticized her. So see, the good part of life is not having followers, is not having the career. The good part of life is having the ability to prostrate yourself at the feet of Jesus and spending time there where there is peace, safety, forgiveness, restoration. And paradoxically, there's no higher honor to do that. Showing that type of devotion to Christ will cause him to memorialize your faith, just like he did with this lady. He says, from now on, every time the gospel is preached, her action will be named, will be described. And that's what we're doing today, 2,000 years later. Why? Because Jesus decided that needs to be memorialized, because that is the type of worship that I expect. That is the type of worship that will get you to be a hero of the faith. Not that you're concerned about what other people's opinion of you, but because you want to bless the heart of your Savior. Now, this faith and the memorializing of this faith requires that level of humility and complete abandon. This is complete abandon here, a total disregard for the approval of people. Remember, she was doing this under the eyes of the disciples who were disapproving of what she was doing. This is the type of faith that spares no resources to honor Jesus. Then let me ask you, church, when was the last time you found yourself so caught up in worship and prayer and Bible reading that you lost track of time even, and that you even lost track of your awareness uh, of your surroundings? As we close, let me give you an example. We're, we're almost done here. Let me give you an example of somebody else that did that. That's in 1 Samuel 1, verses 12 through 15, Hannah. 
Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought that she was drunk. And Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my Lord. I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. You see, when was the last time you poured out your soul before the Lord so intensely that you didn't even care about what people will say about you? Now, this is not, let me make a disclaimer here, okay? This is not an excuse for disorderly conduct in the church, but this is just an intense desire to be in the presence of God that you you care nothing about what people are going to say concerning you. Have you given Jesus only the leftovers of your life or your metaphorical costly perfume? Now, there's no better place to be than at the feet of Jesus. Let me ask you, is that your desire too, to have that kind of faith that spares no effort No resources to honor Christ. Uh, The kind of faith that causes you to lose all sense of self even, sense of personal goals, preferences, all of those things stay behind and none of them are more important than crawling to the feet of Jesus Christ. There is no better place. So I invite you today to come. Let's spare no effort or resources to thank Him for so great a salvation. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth with Grace.